Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Hi everybody, Dwayne Davidson here, host of Tales from Tolt, and today we're going to be talking about a very interesting bit of the social social fabric of the Suquamish Valley, and that is the fraternal organizations that provided a very useful service to the communities of the Suquamish Valley. There are a great many fraternities you could talk about. There's so many numerous ones. We don't have time to talk about all of them. Uh, maybe in future programs, we can focus on some of the smaller, more obscure ones, but I'm gonna pick the three that I think were the most influential in our Valley history. And that's the Masons and the Oddfellows and the Grange. Also kind of unique today is I don't have a guest host today. And I purposely kind of did that because to try to organize this with these different organizations, it would have been a little difficult to do. And so what I did is I just interviewed some uh, folks about some of the more important facts of these three different organizations. And I'll just be doing this kind of winging this myself today. Uh, but let's just go ahead and get started and start talking first about probably what is the oldest, and that's the, uh, the Freemasonry or Masons. Their existence in the Sonoma Valley, well, first of all, on the two far ends, there is a, a Mason Lodge in both uh, Monroe and North Bend. But as all the space in the middle uh, basically was served by the one lodge in Fall, uh, in Fall City. Interesting thing about that lodge is it's called the Falls City Lodge. Um, there's a little bit of history about that. Evidently, it was recorded. Someone thought when they were approving their charter that it should be correctly spelled Falls City not realizing that the town was actually named Fall City. Remember, that was a topic of one of our previous episodes of Tales from Tolt when we were talking to the Fall, State, Fall City Historical Society folks. And I think one of the theories is that Fall City is actually named after a, a gentleman that was stationed in one of the uh, forts uh, nearby. And most people just think of its location near the falls. It would be, you know, uh, after the falls, but it's not. Um, the Falls City Lodge, uh, number 66, efforts were uh, underway in 1889 by some Masons living in the area at the time to create the uh, lodge there. Two prominent people involved in that early effort was uh, Mr. Rutherford and uh, Mr. Bagwell. Uh, Mr. Rutherford, well, actually there was a couple brothers that were involved, but uh, the one uh, Rutherford was basically very prominent uh, uh, person in King County in the sense that he was a county commissioner. You'll see his name on many of the censuses of uh, long ago. Very prominent family that farmed just north of uh, Fall City. And the other was Mr. Bagwell and Tolt, uh, now Carnation, who also was just a little bit north of that town. And uh, those were uh, two of the key members that started that uh, particular lodge. Um, 
it was first started in, I think it was called Taylor Store, that was down by the river, and that burnt down. Then they started meeting in the Oddfellows Hall. We'll be talking about Oddfellows in just a moment. And then in 1896, they were able to build a new hall, and which is still exists today. It's on the historical registry. Uh, it's a landmark, and it's been a building that's a, a one of the more historical buildings in Fall City and has served that community very well for a number of years. So that is um, the uh, Masonic uh, Lodge of uh, Fall City. You know, the Masons are a very complex organization with many different branches and different types of uh, affiliated groups. Uh, there's, you know, the Scottish Rite and the, the uh, Order of the Eastern Star and and uh, Shriners that are very famous for the hospitals. Um, but one thing uh, in the sense of that I thought was very unique about the Fall City Lodge was uh, not what type of lodge or what type of Masons it were, but that they were one of the Masons that developed for their meeting schedule the practice of meeting on full moons. And so they called it a moon lodge, which was very common. Um, back in previous days and you know automatically you think oh wait a minute are we getting kind of cultish here what's up, up what's up with that but actually the practice was developed because of um, these working these were working people that worked all day and so they met at night and uh, the full moon gave them enough light to safely travel to and from the meetings by either foot or by horseback and so I thought that was an interesting thing that I had never heard of before was that they were a, a moon lodge. And um, it's important to note that they are still in existence to this day. There's uh, a Masons meet in that building um, on a regular basis. And so it continues on. Um, the next group I want to talk about is the uh, Oddfellows. Uh, the Independent Order of Oddfellows is a uh, also a very old fraternity going back to being founded in uh, um, England back in 1730 or something like that. Coming to America, established in 1819. Um, their motto or their the theme about it, is, I'll just read this. It says, uh, our duty is to visit the sick, um, relieve the distress, bury the dead, and educate the orphan. So as you can tell, they not only, all these fraternities basically were the same in that they provided a socialization for, um, uh, for you know, they basically were a meeting group where people could get together and, and um, have some companionship, but they also were uh, created for very specific purposes, usually to fulfill some type of need or, um, uh, the, before government programs came by in later years to to um, do much of that, they were created for a particular purpose. Sometimes they took on insurance um, uh, responsibilities to provide insurance for widows and all sorts of things. And so that was an important aspect of what they did. And the Oddfellows were no exception. I think that's really remarkable that you know it was 
back then, influenza and others, uh, visiting the sick could be a pretty risky thing to do, just as it is today. But that was one of the parts of their original charter. So um, they're always identifiable. The meeting lodges are because they have uh, IOOF on the outside. And then there's three things that resemble chain links and they represent uh, friendship, love, and truth. Monroe, there was Lodge 156. Duval, uh, I had a little bit more trouble locating them. Uh, I had to rely on the help of a couple local historians, uh, Bob and Ken Costers, who helped me um, locate that the Oddfellows met in Mannion um, Hardware Store, AP uh, Mannion hardware store upstairs and um, because practically every community had an oddfellows back in those days and so Duval was no exception. I'm not exactly sure after that hardware store went out of existence where they went but uh, uh, or if they just merged with a different lodge but that's where they existed in Duval. When we get to Carnation, Tolk Carnation, uh, it's a little different story. The oddfellows was really successful there. Uh, it was a quite a large group just talk a little bit about their history. They first purchased a lot from George W. Shaw. And um, why that's very significant is George W. Shaw is a name that goes way back to one of the early pioneers of Toll. He was uh, owner of the trading post that was right down on the river where there was also a ferry that crossed the river um, in what is uh, now McDonald Park. That was actually the town at the time. That was a commercial center, uh, McDonald Park. And at the end of the road, right on 203 there, it is presently owned by the Snoqualmie tribe. That building was the first uh, Oddfellows Hall. Uh, it was established in 1895. By 1925, they had grown so large that they needed a bigger building. And so they um, sold that building to the Eagles, one of the one of the fraternities we're not talking about today, they sold that to the uh, Eagles Lodge and they built a new lodge that's the present site of the Snow Valley Senior Center. And th they built that for $10,000, took out a $5,000 bond and relied on $5,000 worth of savings apparently, and built that very impressive building that's still in existence today. It was, um, uh, in existence and served the community for with dances and 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 of course served the Oddfellows and their function for a meeting place for a good many years all the way up until 1971. And I remember about that time, a gentleman by the name of Kurt Whitcomb um, took possession privately of the um, that building, and he made it into a public uh, like a tavern, a drinking establishment and dancing. And it was noted uh, because of the fact that he had purchased a very large pipe organ from someplace down in Oregon, Salem, Oregon, I believe. And he called it the Glyce Pit. And it was an interesting place. I remember going there as a young man myself. It was, um, it was quite the thing in the late 70s. And I think it went into the early 80s where it became a couple different things. And now is the um, uh, senior center. That's the Oddfellows' existence incarnation. When they sold that building into private ownership in 1971, 
the Carnation uh, Lodge merged with the Fall City Lodge, uh, which is still in existence today. Fall City Lodge number 59. Interesting about them is they just recently celebrated their 133rd birthday because they were founded on February 7th of 1889. Um, and what's also interesting about the Fall City Lodge is they, like I said, are still in existence today and still have regular meetings at that facility. I don't think that that is uh, the historic building. Um, by just looking at it online, it looks like a newer building. But nevertheless, that lodge is still in existence today and serves uh, uh, the purposes of for the Oddfellows at this time. One thing I like to note is doing the research on all these fraternities, um, one thing I'd like to point out is I've noticed that the membership of these organizations, you would think they would follow the bell curve and they, you know, would have uh, became very, very prominent at uh, maybe the early 1900s. And then, and then there's been a slow decline as people had different means of uh, uh, occupying their times. And this wasn't as important and they just would have made a steady decline and now membership is a little bit lower in some of these lodges. That's not really historically actually correct. Uh, all these lodges, uh, uh, all these different types of organizations, I should say, their membership actually goes um, uh, up and down for various reasons, uh, causes that they take on and other uh, factors. Uh, so it's much more of a roller coaster and they have a, a surge in membership at different times if they take on different kind of causes. And so, um, you know, who knows as we emerge from COVID and we uh, maybe became become a little bit more social again someday, uh, maybe there will be a, uh, a resurgence of some of the uh, uh, fraternal organizations in the future. So after the break, we'll talk about the third remaining one we'll be talking about today. And that is uh, a very large one, and that's the Grange. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straight jacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back. Uh, Dwayne Davidson, uh, Tales from Tolt, and we're talking about the fraternal organizations that existed in the, uh, at least the big three that existed in the Snoqualmie Valley. And now we come to the Grange, having previously talked about the, uh, the Masons and the uh, Oddfellows. Uh, the Grange was a very important organization um, of, of the past, very prominent, uh, important organization to this very day. Um, basically, the Grange was formed to uh, represent uh, farmers and people living in the rural areas to promote educational programs and give them a political um, basically a political force and also had other social purposes. They were established in 1889 in this state, just uh, a couple of months prior to uh, statehood. 
and they're basically a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, organization uh, devoted to improving the quality of life of Washington residents through uh, the spirit of community service and bipartisan action. Um, it's off of their website. And in the Socomi Valley, um, almost every town had uh, a Grange, and we were no exception, but, but we did have an exception. And that is that uh, Fall City uh, never really had a lodge of their own. Uh, the Fall City members, I suppose, uh, went to a couple of the existing granges that still exist today. Uh, there is, I think it's pronounced Salela, I, I believe that's uh, correct, in North Bend, the North Bend Grange. And then there's also one that's kind of between Redmond and Fall City called Happy Valley Grange. And um, so the people in Fall City long ago had, uh, that wanted to attend Grange meetings had the option of belonging to one of those two, or of course, uh, Carnation. Uh, Duval also had a, a Grange. Their building is one of the more historic buildings in Duval, beautiful building, built in 1926. And it's uh, actually currently still a restaurant uh, called The Grange, although it's not really affiliated with The Grange uh, anymore. It is a uh, basically a farm to uh, uh, farm to table type of uh, restaurant that features many uh, items that are grown right here in the Valley or Washington State. Uh, so you can check them out. Carnation had a very large Grange presence though. Not only was their social hall quite large that was out on McKinley Avenue, still is there today. I believe that has now actually, that old social hall has actually been converted to apartments. Uh, could be wrong about that, but it looks like it's residences now to me, either condos or apartments or, or something. I can remember when I was a young boy that that was a uh, basically one of the centers of community life in the city of Carnation. Not only did the Grange meet there, but other nonprofits met there. One that was very, my family, the Davidsons were very involved in, and that was the Carnation Sportsman Club held their meetings there. And also we rented out the, uh, that club rented out the, the social hall for a big annual steelhead dinner. That was the major fundraiser of the club that helped fund activities at the club and also helped fund uh, the big derby, which was uh, uh, the big steelhead derby, which was a huge part of, the, of that uh, of that club. You could go into the Polk Cafe and see who posted the most recent uh, fish caught and uh, the winners of the derby would win a new fishing bowl or something that was bought for from the club funds. So that was kind of interesting and fun. But the community hall, I can remember, it doesn't look so today as most memories of your childhood. Things seem to be so much bigger from the past than they actually were. It seemed like a huge hall to me at the time. Uh, Grange meetings were held there. But what made Carnation kind of uh, unique is that they had a Grange store. Now, the Grange having stores to serve their members is not extremely rare. Matter of fact, you only have to go as far as Issaquah to find uh, another Grange store, which still is in existence there. But I think the Grange 
organization itself was not associated with those stores much after like the 40s or 50s or something like that. They they kind of went into uh, being owned by others. Uh, but of course, the grain store, when I grew up, it was basically my first job uh, in high school is I worked on the feed loading dock at the grain store. And it really was, it was one of the two grocery stores that was located in Carnation, that and Pars IGA. And have a lot of fond memories of being there when I was in high school and working that store and being able to afford to buy some candy there. It was also in walking distance of the school, so we could walk there during our uh, school lunch. One of the things I think that's kind of interesting is we got all this home delivery of groceries now, which is kind of a new concept, really being made popular since COVID has um, yet. But back in those days, I remember people you were able to, farmers especially, were able to call in to the grain store, their grocery order, and uh, the uh, workers there boxed it up into cardboard boxes, tied the boxes shut with string, that came off of a spool up on the ceiling. I can remember this. Uh, I can have vivid memory of what that looked like. And they um, would box up the groceries and mark them for what families they were des designated to go to and put them in the front seat of the food, the feed truck that was making uh, uh, feed deliveries for cow feed and pig feed and stuff like that. Um, out to the various farmers. And so it was a way of, uh, had the delivery for the, for the animals. And then in the front seat was a delivery for the farm family. So that was kind of a, a unique thing kind of before it's time that they were able to make a deliveries right to the farmer. Um, the Carnation store was, uh, it was an all around store that was basically there for purposes of, of uh, supplying anything that the people needed in the way of, it was a general merchandise store for sure. Uh, like I said, they had a feed, they had actually a feed mill there for a while. It was serviced by the railroad. They had groceries and hardware and other things of just about all of the things that a farmer would need for, uh, for a small family farm that existed back in those days. Um, I also remember very well that uh, credit was given. And when people either called in their grocery orders or would come in, people would tell them to uh, put it on the tab. And there was a card file there and people, the, the workers would pull it out and add that entry. And then the farmers, when they got um, paid or sold cattle at auction or whenever they were able to um, uh, pay their bill, they would come in and settle up. And um, I remember at least at the time period that I worked there, if you came in and you paid off your bill in full, he got like some kind of a large uh, Hershey bar for that. <laughs> so there was kind of a reward uh, for um, paying off your credit uh, all at once. You got this big giant size uh, uh, chocolate bar. I remember that well because I can remember there being a disgruntled person once that came in and I know who it was, but I'm not going to say it for this program. I don't know if they're still alive yet or not, but they were very, very upset and made 
quite the scene about it that they were uh, not afforded the opportunity of uh, getting a, uh, the same type of reward because of the fact that they didn't put anything on credit and they paid their bill in cash. And that upset them of the fact that uh, they didn't uh, ever get the chance to win this candy bar because they were a cash customer. Uh, to make them go away, they gave them a candy bar. So <laughs> I don't know how, how many more he got subsequent to that. I'm not sure, but that was uh, something I vividly remember uh, as a young man working at the uh, Grange store. So the Grange had, um, like I said, they had a hall in Duval. The Fall City folks had to kind of uh, work between North Bend and, uh, and the one out located on the way to Redmond. Um, all those organizations belong to the state Grange and the state Grange is always and continue to this day to be very involved with, uh, uh, like I said at the beginning, make, representing farmers. Just to give kind of a quick little recap about some of the things that they've uh, helped through the time to tell you just how significant they are, is um, they, they were very influential in the formation of the state because they were kind of a populist type of uh, organization that was, you know, formed to kind of battle the um, large railroads that the farmers felt that were, you know, taking advantage of them back east. And so uh, they were one of the reasons why we were more of a progressive uh, type of a, a state, um, representative of the fact that we had a constitution that was allowed for initiatives. And we had so many statewide elected officials as appointed to just a few and everybody else is appointed. Those are, those are trademarks or those are signs of a, a more um, uh, populous form of a government. And that was uh, what we, um, that's what we have. Later on, the Grange was very instrumental in uh, getting um, the legislature to, um, to allow for the formation of public utility districts, which aren't in every part of the state, but they're very, very prevalent in some. Uh, PUDs uh, are, you know, public uh, corporations uh, um, with elected officials that um, supply electrical power and other utilities to their residents in the district. They later, in a very, uh, there's a pretty profound uh, bit of legislation, 1935, so in the midst of the Depression, they uh, helped bring about the blanket primary election process. And that was huge at the time. Uh, that allowed people to basically vote for whoever, regardless of political party. Some parts of the state, you have to pick a ballot by partisan, um, you know, you have to declare yourself a Republican or Democrat and vote that ticket. And that wasn't the case in Washington State. You could basically cross over vote uh, even in the primaries uh, easily in the primaries and, uh, and allowed you to split between parties your vote. Not all states had that. That was kind of a big deal. And so uh, we had that until it was held to be unconstitutional. That caused a lot of people a lot of grief. And so the Grange successfully uh, uh, or they're not they're very instrumental in the effort to develop the top two uh, primary system that we have now. 
to try to replicate as close as possible what people had with a blanket primary system. And that was to allow people to cross over voting in the, um, uh, in the primary. And now we have a system to where just the top two, uh, regardless of political party, advance. And so that was meant to try to get as close to we had as when we had a blanket primary system. And the Grange was very involved in that. Grange also in recent years uh, developed the um, a successful initiative to protect the uh, family farms called the Family Farm Water Act, which really greatly enhanced the survival of family farms in Washington state. So they've been very, very active in the legislature, uh, continue to be so. Their building is just down from the Capitol uh, some bit. And so they're a very prominent organization uh, representing rural areas. And they were very involved in our little rural area called Snoqualmie Valley for uh, providing not only services on a very local level that we just talked about, but also uh, helping um, these statewide efforts that had a profound effect on um, the way that we um, conduct our elections and other things. So, so that kind of wraps up the three, like I said, uh, the beginning of this program, maybe sometime in the future, we'll be able to get a uh, tackle these one by one and with a, with a guest host to talk about these concepts a little bit further. But right now, I hope that gave you just kind of an overview about those three big organizations that provided a lot socially to um, the people in the Socome Valley um, in years past. So uh, that's the program for today. Uh, please tune in next week as we continue to explore the history of the Socome Valley. Thanks, folks. Thanks.